Hello and welcome again to Obscurity Knox, the show that I don't get paid for and you still get to listen to it anyway. Once again, uh, we have an actor with us who has an extensive resume. You can currently see him on uh, ABC's Blackish. Uh, he's also been in films from One Hour Photo to uh, Trumbo, most recently, I believe. As far back as Tom and Huck, uh, Nick of Time, uh, Lorenzo's Oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter McKenzie. Hello, hello. Welcome. Thank you. I do get paid for this, Will. I don't know how that worked <laughs> out, but I actually had $10,000 during this, so wow. That is uh, – that's like my budget for the next 15 years. <laughs> Congratulations. I think your agent's totally screwing you over. Go ahead. I think you should be paying yours more, frankly. (laughs) I appreciate you being here. Uh, I will go ahead and give the shout-out to uh, Michael Price, who uh, specifically said right as I started this uh, podcast, you should ask Peter McKenzie to be on your show. I think he'd be perfect. God bless Michael Price's pointy little head. Yes. So he's the one who I'll lay blame on if uh, you were to. But I don't think you're going to be. I get the feeling this is going to be great. He's a good egg. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess to start, uh, we'll refresh everyone's memory on the rules. Uh, you have three virtual cards that you can play. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, there is the Just Say No card. Uh, If there is a project that you absolutely positively don't want to discuss at all, you can play that card, and I cannot ask you any questions about it whatsoever. It's just on to the next project. There is the one-liner card, uh, where you only have to offer a cursory sentence uh, to explain why you don't want to go into detail about that project, and it can be as generic or as tantalizing as you want to make it, because I will not be asking any (laughs) follow-up questions either. Uh, And then lastly, there is the switcher card, where if there is a project that uh, if you don't want to talk about it or if you just don't think the story is very good and you'd rather offer a better anecdote, uh, that's fine. You can switch it out for something else. It just has to be of approximately the same level of obscurity. Excellent. All right. Well, we will start off uh, with uh, the 80s classic. I I made air quotes. uh, Firehouse. Right. Firehouse. So, um, wow. Am I going to do this? Yeah. Firehouse was a... um, Horrible movie. Um, I I don't think I was even a member of SAG at the time. And someone called me up and I and said uh, it's one of those things you saw in there used to be a magazine in New York called Backstage, and you could audition and you know and and it turned out to be basically kind of like soft porn. Um, <laughs> and Pete Onorati was in the in the uh, I don't know if you remember Pete. He was in he did a do. yeah. Pete was in that movie. Uh, I've never saw it. They never released it. I don't think it was. Bef- I don't. I. I have no good stories otherwise than either, I was. A, I, as I remember it, I was a um, police captain, and and I kept hearing stories from the crew about these scenes of um, these girls with their titties out, and I was never <laughs> in those scenes. Um, so I was in the scene just pushing the. I'm sure brilliant exposition along. I have no memory of who directed it. It's um, it is absolutely something that my subconscious has just pushed to the dark side and away from the table. Um, I don't, I don't, and I remember it. And whenever I see it on my resume, I kind of go, God, no, don't put that thing there, Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, and I have no idea. I'm sure I must look 12 in it. I've never, I've never seen it. So it is, it's so obscure that I have no idea what the hell it is. So. <laughs> well, 
Well, I will say that uh, based on your name, I feel like you must have played some sort of stuffed shirt because your character's name is Dixon Willoughby. Yes, exactly. No, that, that was exactly it. And I was, I'm sure, made fun of and, you know, humiliated and got none of the girls. You know, all the firemen in there, it was all about them, you know, getting the trucks washed by girls, you know, topless girl. I don't know. Who cares? It was just nonsense. And uh, at the time, I remember being thrilled to actually be in a movie. Um, and uh, mm, was that a good feeling? Yes, it sure was. <laughs> piece of shit, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know anything about it, and who was involved or anything. I really, except that Pete was in it. Whenever I see him, occasionally at auditions, will kind of like he actually was the lead in it, and he kept taking his shirt off and would show off his firm body and. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think it, uh, it maybe it was a big uh, jumping off point for his career. I have no idea. Well, I will just say that his uh, IMDb photo, the uh, the the primary one, is him laying in a bed with a shirt off. It is. So, it, uh, Pete? It You're is. kidding. It really is. <laughs> wow. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. I would say the only other observation that I would make is that uh, just, the director you hadn't remembered his name. It's J. Christian Ingvertson. Wow. You see. You see, um, you know, when you mix the fact that I've done horrible things uh, <laughs> and with my, you know, uh, creeping um, Alzheimer's and dementia, it just sure. that just name wouldn't mean anything. It sounds like, a, you know, um, I don't know, a, a server somewhere in the Midwest. I wouldn't know who that person was at some <laughs> smorgasbord somewhere in some Swedish restaurant. I don't know who that person is. and. That's why whenever I meet somebody, you know, whenever I'm, you know, on the street or someone says, hey, Peter, I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm such a coward. I have no idea. And then I'm madly, you know, doing my version of a computer going, how do I know this person? Give me a hint. Give me a clue. Say something. Say something. <laughs> it's just panic. I have no, no idea. Uh, I can't remember anything about that, Will. I have no Good stories, other than I just remember it kind of being like, um, you know, a scab that just won't go away. I don't know. It's nothing that I'm at all proud of or anything. It's taken me this long to begin even, you know, 30 whatever years of, of acting to even feel comfortable now getting when I get a job. So God knows what I was like then. It must just be like kabuki theater if I were to look at that, you know, just me with a big grin on or something absurd, you know. <laughs> Well, I did notice, and I'll wrap with this, that, uh, as far as uh, J. Christian Ingvartsen's back catalog, I, I find it fascinating that he directed, produced, wrote, and appeared in Airboss, Airboss 2, Preemptive Strike, Airboss 3, The Payback, and Airboss 4, The X Factor. Wow. So he made a living off of, He has money trees in his backyard of Airboss. Uh, it would seem. He is the, the king of the franchise. Whatever Airbus does that is that a is that a title that means something to you? It absolutely does not. I, that's why I'm so fascinated by it. <laughs> it's a four film franchise, and I don't know a thing about yeah, it. Yeah, that must be the fun thing about doing this. Well, now you're like, put him on the list. I'll interview him next. Oh yeah, no, he, <laughs> he's coming. If he's not, somebody from that that franchise is coming on, so I can get the, the scoop. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's Peter. I'm now. I'm like you. Looking at the IMDb too, I don't recognize any of these people in it. He was actually in it. Oh, look at that! He was in the movie. <laughs> J. Christian Ingrid Vorkinson. 
So he was. Yeah. He was the fundraiser attendee wearing shades. Yeah, and it says his it says his claim to fame is Hangman, something called Hangman. Well, there you go. I will take IMDb's <laughs> word for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, I don't. I mean, I really. It really is. Uh, we shot it out in uh, New Jersey. I remember. Um, and we kept, it was total guerrilla shooting cause we never had permits. So mm-hmm. we would shoot scenes and it would be a lot of, and this was before the days of, um, you know, high def or we were shooting on film or some version of film, but it was like a, you know, a 16 millimeter that he was going to convert and it was just horrible. And then he kept going, we have only two takes cause the police are coming. You know, it was like that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, sweet. And we all thought we were, you know, being rebels, but we were making basically, Soft porn, you know, that's all it was. You know, some dude had come up with a thing. Whenever he got in trouble, I'm sure it's like, and then girls take their tops off. That was the answer to the whatever sort of script problems he was having, you know. Cut to. Right, cut to. <laughs> Pete Honorati with another chick naked. <laughs> he had it rough, I guess. Yeah, right. All right, so next up, uh, we'll see a, a last-second fill-in due to the fact that IMDb credited you as being in off-limits when, in fact, you were not. Uh, so we're filling in the blank here with Spencer for Hire, predominantly because I'm now intrigued by the story that you say you have. Well, so uh, this was the first uh, the first job I ever got, the first job I ever got as a on, on film or TV. I mean, I've been working in New York um, doing theater, and then I got a job, Spencer for Hire – um, shooting it shot in Manhattan along with the Equalizer, a show I got right after this. But Spencer for Hire was cool because um, it was a spinoff. They did a spinoff of this show. The the episode I did was actually a spinoff um, for a new series that they were going to make. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and uh, in the episode, I played a naval captain or something like that just there was a murder i mean not that that was separated from any other episode <laughs> of uh, spencer for hire but he was very cool robert ulrich was ulrich was cool and avery brooks was very cool but the thing was they were spinning off this episode and in the episode i had to uh work with a girl a young actress who was accused of murder um, that actress was, um, God, I'm telling a great story, and I, uh, my Alzheimer's is acting up. What is, oh, Andy McDowell was the girl. Oh, yeah. So Andy McDowell was this girl, but Andy McDowell at the time was very well known because, or her, her star had risen high in the sky because of Tarzan. She was the I... lead in Tarzan. Well, in Tarzan, you know, Andy comes from a small town in Texas and has a, at the time had a fairly pronounced Southern accent. Right. So yeah. in, in, in Tarzan, they dubbed her for the entire movie. I don't know if you know that or not, but they, they dubbed her out because the, you know, she's like Tarzan, you're here. And Oh, look, you saved me. And they realized that they had hired and she was a model previously. Well, so this movie comes out. She's a, it does very well, but then 
she got a deal as a spinoff for Spencer. And they realized, and all this hubbub came out, it became public that it wasn't her voice, that they had dubbed her out. So what they ended up doing, because they had a deal in place with Warner Brothers to already spin her off Spencer, they mm-hmm. chose to make her character a deaf-mute dancer. Uh, so <laughs> they they were so afraid because of the publicity from Tarzan. So here I am, and Andy McDowell is furious because they've given her a role. They promised her they'd spin her up, and she can't speak. You know, she doesn't know <laughs> sign language. She was so angry, and I was, you know, my first gig on the set, and I was, you know, in a fancy little navy outfit, and I thought it looked, and she was very pretty and cute, and just slamming things on the set and why can't I talk? I want to talk. And I'm like, nope, sorry, you're a mute, you know. <laughs> it just is so funny that this they had given her like, damn it, damn it. We gave her a deal. Damn it. All right. Well, here's the answer. We'll, we'll, give, we'll make her a deaf mute and then make her a dancer. That's what a lot of deaf mutes do. They're dancing. <laughs> so absurd. <laughs> And uh, it was just it was just this kind of mini shitstorm that was happening on the stage, um, uh, you know, as everyone's kind of swirling around us, you know, and, uh, it was just and I was just bug eyed looking at the whole thing because here's my first I had done theater for 10 years, you know, so I was just amazed that there was someone there. I mean, I really my first gig. So I came to set with my makeup because in theater that's all you know you always did your own makeup so i got to i got to the state theater and here's your trailer and i was like wow there's a toilet in here this is fantastic (laughs) and then they said go to the makeup trailer and i thought oh this is cool you go to a place where you all put on our own makeup together and there was someone who i sat in a chair and did my makeup for me you know it was it, that that alone would show you what a what a little neophyte I was, but I was just I was just blown away that I didn't have to, you know, do my base makeup and do all of that stuff. There was a person who did, you know, back when I actually had hair, the person who could do my hair, and I was I was thrilled by the whole process. And we were shooting in the streets of New York, and that was cool too, you know. We shot on the on the docks out out in the Chelsea Piers. This is before the Chelsea Piers were now what they were, they're now, you know, made up and a huge moneymaker. They're just deserted old broken down warehouses. You had to like, make sure you didn't fall into the West side river, you know, whatever the hell it was. So yeah, that was my Spencer for hire story. So, well, I'll just offer a quick sidebar that, uh, I actually had done random roles with, uh, Andy McDowell. And, uh, we talked about both Spencer for hire and, uh, uh, Tarzan, but I asked her about Spencer for Hire first, yeah. uh, and she, I guess in retrospect, I now wonder if she was feigning uh, a lack of remembrance about the role. She was like, wasn't she a ballet teacher? <laughs> oh, wow, dude, that's kind of wild. Yeah, I've never run into her. She wouldn't obviously remember me from Adam, but... Um, you know, and she wasn't, she later, you know, went on to much more acclaim than certainly, because she hadn't done, what was the Jimmy Spader thing, the... Uh, oh, uh, Sex, Lies, and Video. Right, and that skyrocketed her, and then Four Weddings and all these things. I mean, she's obviously gone to a really magnificent career, but at the time it was, it had, she had just boomed off of... What was her What was her comments about Tarzan? I'm so curious. Oh, I, yeah, it's funny, I, I didn't ask about it until later... Uh, into the interview, just because it seemed 
wise to not like lead with that. But you knew, uh, you knew the story, and, right? You knew the, the that deal that she been that had been dubbed, right? I did, right. but she went into more detail than her publicist later said she's never going into that detail with anyone. Wow, so congratulations! Cool. All right, <laughs> but uh, I'll just I'll give you a quick nutshell. She said. Uh, I was shocked for starters because I had no idea, and how I found out I felt was cruel. I went over to do looping, and they kind of told me. <laughs> I, w- I was by myself. My agent didn't know. Nobody knew. Uh, I thought the way they did it was very underhanded and thoughtless. Uh, I still ended up making the sounds for the baby being born in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She said, uh, you can imagine that it ended up being pretty easy uh, to do that because I was in so much pain after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fought really hard to redub it myself, but I had a lump in my throat the whole time, so I'm surprised I even made it through. Oh, it's a cruel business, man. It's especially cruel to women, i got to say. Because here's Andy, you know, she was a model and exquisitely beautiful. And like then, yeah. you know, these idiots don't do their research and find out she's from Texas. It's like... That might have been something you looked into before you hired her as Jane, you know. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, good, good, good for her. She certainly not only <clears throat> survived that, uh, but uh, overcame it. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, that was her, her closing word. Uh, was that uh, it was a huge accomplishment. I look back at it and I really feel like I overcame the impossible. Ha! Well, there it is. Yeah, that was a. I mean, it was such a kind of egg in the face moment. I mean, every review had gotten wind of it, I remember, and just yeah. kind of laid it out there, and just was so, yeah, whatever. Who who played Tarzan in that? Uh, Christopher Lambert, wasn't it? Yeah, Christophe Lambert, the Frenchman, <laughs> right, who didn't really need to speak English, so they hired a Frenchman to play an English, or, or an eighth man, and then, an, yeah, well done, well done. <laughs> uh, Christophe Lambert, who ended up uh, marrying Diane Lane. I suppose so, yeah. Actually, I forgot about yes, that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And then uh, that ended. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess uh, next up we have the immortal Theodore Rex. Theodore Rex. Wow. I'm sure most of your listeners have a copy of this film at home in their video library. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so Theodore Rex, I remember for two reasons. One, because I got to work with Whoopi Goldberg. Um and uh, it was a fun role. I'd done, a, I'd done a TV show called Herman's Head, which ended oh, yeah. in 94. And they, uh, this was my favorite type of audition where they called up and offered it. And, um, and Armand Müllerstahl was in it, yeah. And he was, uh, no, 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 his daughter was in it. His daughter, Armand's daughter was in it? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, I got to work with Whoopi, you know. And so for me... Whoopi did a one-woman show on Broadway years ago. And when I was a young actor in New York, I went to go see it, and she played all these characters. I mean, from a junkie to a white girl to a rap star to to a Rastafarian to a homeless. I mean, it was an unbelievably brilliant uh, performance that I went back and saw twice. Huh. And it just so profounded, uh, profoundly affected me of how amazing she was and just so inspiring that she had put together this this group of characters um and so the chance to work with her was sick it was just a chance to say you know there was a time when i i think i had one son and i had started acting in new york and was broke all the time and doing you know theater down the east village for 214 dollars a week or you know and 
am I doing the right thing? And I just remember seeing Whoopi on Broadway and being so like, yes, this is what I want to do. This turns me on. This excites me. And she kind of kept me on the track. And it was very cool to actually share that with her and to um, tell her that because she, uh, she, you know, kept the hook in my mouth. You know, I, I blame her for the reason I'm, I keep doing this. Um, but it was it was uh, it was really cool. And she was she was miserable, by the way, in this project. She at one point, you know, for those of you who don't know, Theodore Rex is a story that takes place in the future. I can't give you an exact date because I'd ruin the movie. But, um, <laughs> no spoilers, please. Yes. And it and it, and it, um, it had uh, puppeteers inside of. Um, little over human scale dinosaurs, the lead of which was Theodore Rex, who was a police officer who was Whoopi Goldberg's partner. And apparently, I don't know what happened to Whoopi. She, I'm not sure, must have been drinking when she said yes to this movie. And when she sobered up and, and said, I'm, I, what the fuck have I done? And she read the script. She sued to get out of it. And um, they wouldn't let her out of it. So this was another project. It seemed to be a kind of a theme in my life of, of being on this movie where Whoopi hated the director, despised the producer, and wouldn't allow the producer to come to the set. She said she would kick his ass, and Thanks. he didn't. Um, <laughs> and so it was – but she was the bomb. In this. Richard Roundtree was in it, for those of you who remember Shaft and how great sure. Richard was. And I heard this conversation in the, the – you know – the um, the hair and makeup trailer is a, you know is a place for me throughout my career that has always been I would say unilaterally my favorite place to be on the set just because it's usually full of you know people who work much harder than anybody else and are, <laughs> and have just great stories and they've been around and you can if you're smart and you make friends with them they're they're great for gossip and they're great for like telling stories and. You know, you sit in that chair and someone's putting on your hair or putting on your makeup and making your hair look pretty. And it's a great – people become very loquacious in that. And they tell – so Richard came into the uh, came into the trailer the first day he wo- worked. And Whoopi stood up and hugged him and said, uh, you're a huge person in my life because you played – because of Shaft. And Richard was just – what? I don't, what? You're Whoopi Goldberg. What are you, you know, he's being very, like, that's very nice. He said, no, no, no. Whoopi said, my uh, little brother, or big brother, I don't remember, um, was so deeply affected by the moral makeup of your character in Shaft and who he was, a, a brother on the street who could do all these things, and but yet retained a sense of dignity and, and integrity that it saved his life. It pulled him off the streets. And, and, and to this day, he, he definitely would have been a gangbanger. He'd probably be dead. And I owe you his life. And what he said this to Richard and Richard was just kind of like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And, and what we said, I just want you to know if ever you get in trouble, I will always be there for you. And I don't care what it is. If you ever need anything in this business, I will always be there for you. And, she just said it so without pretense, without – I mean, if I were to say to you, hey, Will, listen, you're a good man. If ever you're in trouble, you know, it sounds like kind of like this pretentious thing, like I'll be your savior, you know. But the way Whoopi said it was utterly, utterly from the heart and sincere. And, you know, I don't, I'm sure Richard doesn't need 
uh, whoopee protection or help or anything. But it was just this amazing thing of I owe you so deeply for something you did. Yeah. Ever you need it, you have a IOU chip, and and it was just we all were sitting there just unapologetic and just so raw. Something obviously she felt deeply and wanted to say to Richard, and Richard just sat there and was gobsmacked, but took it in and tried, you know. And then we moved on, and uh, it was really this cool, cool moment of uh, her being very, very raw with it, and uh, no doubt, uh, you know, she probably had something to do with Richard getting that job too. <laughs> um, and he was awesome, and uh, and I remember too. Whoopi, every day in that trailer, she loved uh, gospel music, and there was a there was a group called the Fairfield Four. Fairfield mm-hmm. Four, yeah, the Fairfield Four, and they're an amazing acapella um, um, gospel group. And if if everyone out there doesn't know them, you can still look them up. They're long since defunct, but Whoopi put together a then it was a little cassette tape for me which I still have that would be made for me because I love this music. Um, and that, you know, it was so generous in her part. It just spoke to who she was. I really, I remember, you know, I played a detective in this movie, but it was a lot of, she was quite right not to want to do the movie because it was a lot of, Ooh, how do we get the dinosaur's tail to knock off the, the champagne glass off the table? That'd be funny. Nope. It's not funny. It ain't funny. That's not interesting. And this little pause and stuff. I mean, the whole thing was just horrifying, you know. But outside of the experience of working on the actual movie, working with Whippy was cool. And uh, and I never, you know, never seen her since. Whippy. Um, she came very close to being hired to be um, in the Jennifer Lewis role and uh, and Blackish um, as uh, Anthony Anderson's mom. Oh, Would wow. have been awesome. To reunite with her, um, but um, you know, it's just another one of those things that happens when you're an actor. Is that you know, when you're working on, on a show or working on a movie, you just become so uh, intimate and close to people you work with, and then the show ends, and it's like, oh right, that's my friend, and we were so whoopee. I love whoopee. Oh right, you go. I haven't seen her since uh, 1995. You know, and you. <laughs> I mean, Susan Sarandon, when I, I did a movie uh, years ago, the first well, one of the first movies called um, Lorenzo's Oil, and Susan yeah. said something wonderful, which was very true, um, that, you know, being an actor is like being um, a nomad in the desert. You know, you, you go to a certain place, you find an oasis, which is a job, you all pitch your tents, your camels drink, you eat figs, and everyone's happy, and then you pack up your tents and you just move on. And if you're lucky at some other point, you know, you meet up somewhere out in the vast Sahara of work. But that really is our life. You know, it's just, we're all happy to be eating and drinking and being alive because next time we're like, oh, yeah, she died. She was in the desert. Mm, that was sad. She's dead. You know, who knows? We just never meet them again. But it is very much like that. So uh, anyway, that was my memory of, of working with uh, on Theater Rex. Um, had a lot to do with uh, how generous Whoopi was, you know, and and how miserable and how how much she loathed these people we worked with. But I found that really amusing, and I would do nothing but kind of like, you know, fan the fire of her hatred by like, God, they sound like they were assholes, you know, like that, <laughs> to get her going, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> 
Okay, so next up would be uh, The Faculty. The Faculty. Now, The Faculty um, was a TV show, um, again, that I made uh, fairly recently after uh, after Herman's Head. And um, another one of my favorite auditions where they offered it to me. And in this is how I got to be chums with my good friend Kurt Fuller, who I understand you recently interviewed, right? I did. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, – you didn't ask Kurt about this, I heard, because I listened to this podcast. <laughs> um, Kurt was in this. I probably had it erased off of his. He was in the pilot. We just shot 13 episodes. It was, a, it was as the title would indicate, um, the faculty. The original title was called Teachers Only, with Meredith Baxter was in it. Um, she's so good, by the way. I love Meredith. Actually, I finally just read her uh, autobiography recently. It was oh, fantastic. Did. Yeah, she's a very interesting woman and very bold and brave. I love who she's become. I mean, I went to Meredith's wedding when she was in a period of her life when she was still, you know, making horrible choices with men. Um, my wife and I attended her wedding at the Bel Air Hotel, and she was married to this guy who looked like someone had left a hanger in his face. It just was weird. It was just this. My wife and I are going. She's so lovely. What is she doing with that person? He looked like Leatherface, and uh, it was so weird. It was like his one of those people who takes his hair and you know combs it straight backwards and puts a lot of product into it, so he looks like you know Van Helsing. And I mean, the whole thing was just weird. It's like there was no connection. She's such an earthy, grounded person, and you know, weird that that ended soon. Then she fell in love with women. You know, I mean, no, no doubt. Um, but Kurt was on that show. <laughs> Kurt was fired off of the uh, the um, pilot after we made the pilot, um, and replaced by Miguel Nunez. Who, okay, and I knew Miguel from uh, another show called Homeboys in Other Space. Um, but to this day, you know, because the idea is, was I it, I'm looking here. Oh, it was 1996. So diversity was the name of the game. Uh, no, was it 90? Yeah, 96. And yeah. he was not. Uh, diversified. That show was not diversified. So in order to put color, color, quote unquote, what the network used to call, we need to put some color in. They sh they shit can Kurt and gave his role to Miguel Nunez, which I love to remind Kurt about. I love it. I just, um, you know, out of nowhere, just to say to Kurt when we're having lunch or playing golf, well, you know, he's no Miguel Nunez. Really <laughs> traded up and got something great in that role. You know, that. Um, but it was a very it's funny if you if you look at the uh, IMDb page for the faculty yeah. it it lists off uh, the number of episodes each actor has done and it's it, it numbers all the way down to the single digits and then after the last actor who only did one episode there's Kurt Fuller <laughs> with no no number next to the number of episodes he did right who did the pilot yeah that is, I mean, that is just the most Char charlie brown looking uh entry <laughs> He was the shop teacher, by the way. Okay. He was the <laughs> shop teacher, um, and they, they, uh, you know, Kurt always had this wonderful thing because he's very, you know, one of my favorite people. I've known him forever, but he does, you know, he, he can make people just howl with laughter. But his his humor tends to be kind of um, not aggressive, but just very, um, very bold, let's say. And I remember uh, we had the table read and Kurt was just making people howl and he and I were riffing on each other and we had done a play together before we had done this. So we knew each other. And uh, and uh, 
And I went, God, and the, we were kind of walking out to our cars at the end of the first day. And I went, God, that was great, dude. That was a great day. People loved you on it. He goes, yep, they love me now. In two days, they'll all hate me. <laughs> and then he ended up getting replaced. <laughs> and that's horrible, dude. It's horrible because uh, we've all been fired. You know, I, I we've all gotten to the point where almost being fired or been fired and it's a shitty thing but uh because the pain is so real and horrible when you are replaced and like oh you've been replaced and oh it's a little show called friends and you're no longer in it and they'll run for 17 years and suck it you know um <laughs> but it is funny just with kurt because uh he's so raw with it you know who's in that show who was re- who is still really great you should have on your show well, is Nancy Lenahan? I saw her name on there. Yeah, she's fantastic. She is great. She's so wonderful, and she's so funny, and uh, she's a character actress who just continues to work. She's, I don't, you know, I don't know, mid forties, mid fifties. I don't know how old Nancy is, but she's just an absolute gem, and just she has the rhythm of comedy in her bones so brilliantly. It's just, I mean, it's wonderful to work with her. I love, love, love her. She is, she works all the time too. So, and Peter Michael Getz, so I think now is dead. Is Peter dead? Oh God, that's a horrible uh, thing to say. Um, that's a fair question. Yeah, he did. I, no, no uh, he's still alive. No, Sweet. he seems to still be, yeah. He's so funny. He, he used to make us laugh because he played this, horrible principal of the school who was so absent-minded and funny and just just they gave him the worst things to do and he played vacant you know in a way that <laughs> was so funny just to remember his turns and choices and stuff and it, it was actually a really good show uh i i didn't really know enough about i think you know why shows go and why i mean we shot 13 of them um i remember I remember um, Ryan Stiles, you know, Ryan from um, Drew Carey, from Drew Carey and Who's Line. Well, Ryan and I improvised together for 10 years and did a lot of Second City stuff with a bunch of Andy Dick and Chris Farley and stuff. And we had a group together we did in Santa Monica. And I remember he was shooting a show at Warner Brothers and their pilot. It was also an ABC show. This this um, uh, teachers only was for ABC. And the head of ABC production came by and he went and, you know, he said, oh, God, you know, he saw the pilot. He said, God, you guys are fantastic. Fantastic. He said, oh, God, he said, there's another show that I'm shooting for Warner Brothers. Just garbage. Just it's so awful. So awful. And we were like, yay. You know, because all that actor preservation <laughs> thing, like, yay, other shows suck. Ours is great. Yay. And and then I, I had... Ryan and I had dinner together um, at a at a place between us because we were shooting at Paramount or I don't remember where we were shooting. But Ryan and I had dinner together, and he was in this this show that was so horrible. And and he's like, he asked me about my show, and and he goes, "How's your thing?" I said, "It's really great, man. We're shooting this fun pilot." He goes, "Oh, that's great." And I said, "How's yours?" I knew that this guy who was the head of production said it was crap, and he goes, "It's really." <laughs> Funny, dude. It's really funny because there's this really good dude who's in it. Who, I, he can't really act, but he's he's a wonderful, funny dude. His name is Drew Carey, and he was doing the Drew Carey pilot, right? And 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 what I didn't know 
But this same dude who was the head of ABCP had gone to their set and said, you guys are wonderful. You guys are wonderful. Oh, I'm doing this other show with Meredith Baxter. That's such crap. He would just tell the same lie at every time to. So Ryan and I were both laughing years later because, of course, Drew Carey went on and was on for 19 years, right? And it was huge and was hugely funny. But at that dinner... Ryan was going, oh, yeah, I hear your show's it is His interior monologue was, yeah, ooh, I hear it's crap. And my interior monologue was, yeah, ooh, I hear yours is crap. But neither of us said, like, we had heard that because we were, like, in actor survivor mode, like, delighted that each one was crap and that our show would go. And, of course, mine ended up being the one on the bug on the windshield. And, you know, Ryan's was the one that uh, – that was another aspect of uh, yield uh, – that just made me laugh to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> now were you friends with Ryan when he did the pilot for LAX twenty one ninety four? No. <laughs> <laughs> he is someone who dude you should have in your show. Ryan would be great, dude. But he's people will need to Google LAX twenty one ninety four if they don't know what it is. Yeah. Oh, that was classic, huh? Mm. <laughs> with Matthew Perry, no less. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Um. But speaking of sci-fi shows, yeah. Uh, next up is uh, Homeboys in Outer Space. Right, Homeboys in Outer Space, um, which um, which was um, which was a blast. You know, um, Homeboys in Outer Space was with um, Daryl. Do you have it in front of you? I can't remember Daryl. Uh, Let's see. Uh, I'll look it up. Um, Flex uh, Alexander was in that show. Uh, Flex at the time was. Uh, it's about two young black kids who were like, you know, in scooting around outer space, doing crazy, wacky crap. And it was hysterically funny. And they, you know, parodied, um, Eric Van Lowe created it. Um, Daryl Bell, that's who it was. Yes, exactly. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson, Paulette Braxton. And, uh, you know, it was a show that was way ahead of its time. It was so goofy and bad and, and funny, you know, it was just really funny. And I played an android on the show. So every day I played this character who was their, you know, servant, um, who they, I had to get this, I had to be in makeup, getting this prosthetic on my face, this latex prosthetic on my face um, that took two and a half hours to put on and, and a half hour to get off. It was just, that part of the thing was just the whole part of my face, because it would go over like from my forehead across my right eye and down to my below my ear, you know. So that part of my face was basically, you know, um, I don't know some sixteen-year-old kid with acne. It was just like so ripped apart by all the latex and all the bondo and and spirit gum they would put on there and just rip my face. It was, that that was horrible. But you know, we had people on that show. Um, that were as guest stars. I mean, um, James Doolin, I know James Doolin. Yeah. Cause, cause they went to every sort of, um, superstar, uh, you could imagine, including, it's not even listed here. I'm looking at the, but, um, um, George Takai was on the show. Um, oh, okay. George Takai was insanely great. Um, but no, um, you know, um, Judy Garland and, and, uh, um, you know, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney was on the show. Mickey <laughs> oh. Rooney was on the show. Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney 
that blew my mind, you know. <laughs> a, that he would do a show as horrible, you know, kind of like goofy and weird and bad. But he was having a blast. He loved it. He played, you know, the emperor of the universe. James Brown was on the show. James <laughs> Brown played the emperor of the universe or some freaking thing, you know. Um, and I saw he, Little Richard was on there. Little, little Richard was on the show. It was Burt Ward was on the show who played, you know, Robin. <laughs> It was crazy great to, like, hear these guys' stories, you know. Mickey Rooney told a story about how he was – he had an incredible career. You know, I mean, when you look at yeah. – he kind of was at the beginning of what Hollywood was, right? And then, yeah. you know, all the way through to uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, he was – you know, um, he's a great storyteller and, and – uh, he told a story about how he um, he was he claimed to be the eighteen and under ping pong champion of Southern California when he was a kid, and um, and I don't doubt that he was, but he was you know a child star at the time, and so I just don't know how he fitted in. But when he was sixty or something, he went to the doctor that you know because his eyes were acting up and he couldn't. And the doctor said, "Well, I can do this, I can do that, I can give you cataracts, or you can play ping pong again." He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, there's nothing like." Basically, what happens when we get old is our the muscles in our eyes get relaxed and fat and tired, and that's what your eyes go bad. And ping pong, well, so Mickey claimed to like take up ping pong again, and he said all of his eye problems went away. So I always associate whenever I hear Mickey Rooney, I associate him with like you know being a sixty year old dude playing ping pong and his eyes <laughs> being cured, you know. Um. But that was a that was a great job. Uh, Flex was we continued to see each other. I don't really stay in touch with Daryl. But Flex was at the time they listed him in some magazine like GQ as one of the top ten sexiest men in America. And that was no end of horseshit that we could give him grief over that, you know. And and uh, I remember uh, Spike Lee came out and and slammed the show. He hated it. Right? He came out in the in the community. This was on. This show was on the CW. No, it wasn't CW. It was called WB. WB, right. Yeah. Which Flex and Daryl, to the horror of myself, said WB stands for We Be Black. Because mm. there's only black folks who watch the show, right? Watch that network. And I was like, I'm almost like, you can't say that. You have to, you know, like, the hell that we can say what the hell we want, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, when when Spike came out and slammed it in the community, it was like our our numbers went to hell and everyone hated it. And I I was, I was playing I was playing golf. I remember with um, Sam Jackson. We played I played in a golf tournament that he and I on the final day were playing together, and it was like ESPN two had just been born. What year was this show on? Will it was in uh, it was yeah. uh, ninety six. So ESPN was so lacking for content that they would go to celebrity. Um, golf events and like film the last day. They were looking for such desperate for filler. And Sam and I played 18 holes together. And I mentioned this to him that, you know, he said, well, you know, he didn't know who the hell I was. And I said, I was doing the show. And he's, and I said, Spike killed it. Well, I knew that he and Spike were, you know, obviously it's Spike and it was instrumental in terms of making Sam's career, you know? Yeah. And he said, I don't know where he goes, man, fuck Spike Lee. I was like, what? <laughs> Because Spike likes to hear Spike's name, and I said, because he was asking, Sam was like, who created the show? I said, a black dude, you know, Eric Van Lowe, and, and you know, the, most of, most of, I mean, 
that's where I know Mike from. You know, Mike worked on that show. That's how I know sure. Mike. Mike Price. Mike Price, and uh, and also Maddie Weitzman. Maddie Weitzman, who runs uh, uh, American Dad. Um, oh wow! I mean, the lo- but the m- most of the crew was black, but Spike drove a spike into that show and killed it, and put all these brothers out of work and sisters out of work, and he killed a black show in the air, saying it set it set black. It set the black race back 50 years. That's what he said about the show, because it was so goofy, right? Well, but the the irony, of course, is that, you know, no one, he wasn't saying that, you know, married with children set the white race back fucking 50 years, because that was equally as stupid, you know, I mean, equally as dumb. But Spike just took exception with whatever message he thought it should be in the show and killed the show, which was Brutal, because the only way to, you know, uh, have people of color outside of, you know, TV, particularly, is very much a white person's party, you know. And yeah. and uh, here he was, Spike, as the leading black filmmaker at the time, probably still is, uh, killing a black show because he felt the message. Well, the message was just like, we're m- making dumb sitcom jokes. Why don't you lighten <laughs> up? You know, we're not... Claiming to be, you know, the second Harriet Tubman coming or Martin MLK. We're just being goofy, goofy, but we're having a blast and making people laugh. And he killed it. Wouldn't have anything to do. And and Sam was just like, he loves, you know, Spike loves having his name in the press. And if he can slam you, then he gets his. And I was like, wow. It just sucked, man, because Spike killed that show. So anyway, you know, maybe, maybe it would still be on the air. But <laughs> I doubt it. But uh, there was a chance, so. And I will say, just because someone out there will correct me, I, I said it was uh, the WB. It was actually UPN. Uh, UPN, yeah. That, and there was another – they had another – I can't say it on your podcast what that stood for, but let's just say that that <laughs> stood – they also had uh, uh, whatever that's called, um, you know, the U and the P and the N stood for unemployed <laughs> people and uh, Negroes or a, a, harder, a, harder, a harsher term. And I was like, guys, guys. You can't say that. And I'm like, don't you screw yourself. We can say what we want. We're, and that's the people they said who watched that show, UPN, was unemployed people and Negroes. So. Um, but that was a one. I mean, those are great guys and great experience. And it was just, you know, when this jobs where you show up and laughing. Kevin Michael Richardson. Uh, oh, he's great. Oh, so, so talented. Kevin, of my generation of people, just is such a master of his own vehicle, his own voice, and what he can do. It's amazing. I mean, I'm in oh, awe yeah. of Kevin. I'm in awe of Kevin. I ran into him recently, and we reconnected, which was great, because, uh, you know, we're on this nomad journey, and uh, <laughs> and Kev is just, just an absolute uh, dream of a human being, you know. Uh, my my instant memory of Kevin Michael Richardson is always uh, when my wife and I <laughs> saw him at a uh, Television Critics Association uh, get-together, and it was the second time in a row we'd seen him. And he just saw us, opened his arms, and said, have you hugged your Negro today? <laughs> and so we got a hug yeah. from Kevin Michael Richardson. Uh, no doubt when he hugs you, he lifts you off the ground. He's in a, because he can. A gigantic human being, yes. <laughs> uh, a lot of love for him. A lot of, I love that show. I really a lot of joy doing that show. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating show when you look at the credits, because, I mean, uh, aside from you were talking about the creator, but you had consulting producer Al Jean, uh, Mike Reese. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, Simpsons legends, right there. Yeah, and 
Chris Kloos. He's the American Dad guys, too. Chris Kloos, who's a really funny oh, yeah. dude. Uh, yeah, it was, and Mike Barker. Mike and Matt were partners together. And, yeah. Yeah, no, it's – it's uh, and there's Miguel. Now there's Miguel Nunez on there, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Those are some good – I mean, believe me, they got some people together on that show to be really, really funny. I mean, they they made some funny scripts that were just – you know, destroyed because of spikes. Um, I don't know what. What I don't know what. You know, just hubris, this, hubris maybe. Whatever. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pain in the ass. <laughs> that too. Uh, so I guess next would be uh, Chill Factor. Um, Chill Factor. I'm going to I'm going to do one of my passes here, only because the reason I got this gig was because I'd done a couple of movies with the producers. So a guy, a very good friend of mine named, named uh, Mister. Mr. Robinson, who runs Morgan Creek, um, yeah. and uh, he just threw me this bone. He's like, dude, I need somebody to play. Would you mind playing? And it was like a technician on this thing with Cuba Gooding. It was humiliating. I'd done a movie called um, Major League Back to the Minors, which was the third yeah. in the series of that. That was so bad. That Actually, it can I get you hold on one second? My doorbell is ringing. Probably <laughs> <laughs> being home and the dog is barking, so I'll be right back. <laughs> Well, that was very funny and very unexpected. <laughs> I actually, it was uh, the only other writer for the Onion AV Club who lives in this area who happened to be driving by uh, and has some cupcakes. Well, tell him to join. He can join us. Well, he was off off on another uh, task. <laughs> that sounds like I gladly would have invited him in. You know what? Personally. Just say it's a drug deal. Don't even why why do the dopey? It's I will be just, taking a picture and sending them to you. It's, it's a nice little box. They're, uh, he, oh, right. A, okay, a, Will. Okay. Okay. Um, they're, uh, they're, they're blue and gold. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm citing colors now. I mean. Yes. So Chill Factor was a, was a, was a, was a thing that got offered to me is one day, David Robinson's a good buddy. Just said, do it. And it was, I, there's no story there. So I'm going to substitute. Um, a remake we made of Inherit the Wind. Inherit the Wind is obviously a fantastic, fantastic film. Why they chose to remake it, God only knows. Um, <laughs> you know, Gene Kelly is in it, and uh, Spencer Tracy, um, and uh, whatever the guy's name. The other, I don't know. It's a wonderful. The original is wonderful, but this one starred George C. Scott and Jack Lemmon, and Bo Bridges was in it. Um, you could do worse cast wise. No, no, you could, and it was the last thing George ever made. Um, and he was a hero of mine from, you know, Patton and you name it, and <clears throat> the Hustler, and you know, he's just really great. But he was kind of at the end of his uh, lifeline, and he didn't help that by the fact that George would drink his breakfast. I'm not making it up. Included, you know, um, um, uh, fried eggs, bacon. <laughs> A cigar and a glass of scotch. That was there was apparently orange juice hadn't been invented when George was given was having breakfast. And it's weird that that's he died of a breakfast. That, that's the breakfast of champions, the breakfast right champions. there. He he um died of a massive heart attack. You know, it's weird. Um, I'm shocked. Yeah, shocked really? to find that out. But George, we do this thing because Dan Petrie was an old school director. His son, I believe, is now the head of the DGA. And, Dan was just the, a gem of a person. So what we would do, you know, nine-tenths of that of that uh, film takes place in a courtroom. It's the Scopes Monkey Trial. 
So every day prior to what we were going to shoot, we would gather at a table and read it, right? Read it aloud and discuss how we we're going to do it. But unlike, you know, most times when you show up on a set, you just, you know, you show up and you go to the thing and you report to hair and makeup and then you go and you shoot your scene. This became like a play. Like you would sit, we'd all have to come at the beginning of the day. And regardless of when you worked, you could show up at every, we always got there at 10 o'clock to read or nine o'clock to read. And so it became this like gathering place for stories and whatever. And so it just so happened. Um, it just so happened that in this day was we come to work. It was the day after the Oscars and Roberto Benini had won for um, Life is Beautiful. And Jack Lemon is there. Jack Lemon, who is, you know, inspiring on so many levels as an actor, as a human being, just great and wonderful in the role. He played the Spencer Tracy role. Um, just a just a just a aces of a human being. So George shows up and we're all sitting around telling stories. And I'm, you know, trying to get stories out of Jack Lemon about some like it hot. And, you know, because I just this guy is obviously a hero of mine, too. Yeah. And sure. George shows up the day after the Oscars. This, by the way, George C. Scott, for the younger members of your listening audience, <laughs> is a man who turned down the Oscar because he found for Patton because he hated the idea that it was. I think it's the only uncollected Oscar in the history of the Oscars. The idea that we compete against each other as actors, he found atrocious. You know, he found it just <laughs> immoral that, that there was an academy that pitted actors against each other in a competition, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, and you're going to like, oh, I get that. Okay, you know, whatever. We're all such attention whores that I can, nowadays, that wouldn't occur to anybody to turn down <laughs> an award. You know, now there, and there are 97 awards. You know, it's like, you know, the prepubescent award for, you know, it's whatever. <laughs> like, what? Um, I'll, yes, of course, the 12-year-old award. Give me that. Um, but anyway, so knowing this, George shows up the day after the Oscars, and he's, you know, carrying carrying in from his trailer his breakfast of death, you know, this eggs and sausages <laughs> and scotch. And he searches without like, – he doesn't land. You know, there's no good morning. It's like – did anyone see the Oscars last night? And we're like, yeah, George, we saw it. It was kind of exciting. God damn it. That little dancing guinea, that little Dago prick, that little bastard. Did you see that little monk? I mean, going on and on and on like this. Because if you remember, well, when Roberto Benini won, it was such a spontaneous thing. He got up and he climbed over seats. Remember this? And it was all oh, like, yeah. people loved it, right? And he was, you know, full of his broken... I love America. I love America. <laughs> and he was joyous and he, he won everyone's heart except George C. Scott, who, <laughs> uh, who said, you know, that little, he made a, he made a mockery of it. He's climbing over the seats like a little grinder monkey, like a little dago and just the worst. And what we knew and that George must have known at the time was that Roberto Benini was staying at Jack Lemon's house. Oh. And so Jack and we're all like, you know, mommy and da you know, like mommy and daddy are fighting, you know, it's all everyone in the cast is looking from George who's like, you know, going on. He's like the, you know, the, the, the monster at the end of Alien, you know, he's like spewing acid on everybody and, and looking at Jack Lemon and Jack looks like Mother Teresa just with a grin on his face and I'm not going to go into this I'm not going to say anything and just and let him just spew and we're all like 
holy shit, you know, looking back and forth and knowing that here he was, Benini was Jack's guest. <laughs> it was an unbelievable moment. of, And Jack just going, I'm on the high road and I'm not coming off, George. I'm not going to come off. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go in the little swill pit you've created. Um, anyway, it was just hysterically funny. And uh, that was a, a, um, a bizarre moment of of name dropping, you know. <laughs> so, I guess uh, next is a, uh, a TV movie that might have been forgotten were it not for uh, recently. Oh, right. uh, yeah, uh, American Tragedy, the uh, the uh, 2000 uh, version <laughs> of the O.J. Simpson trial. I'm sure you know the new one that's out. A lot of people before it came on went back and purchased this to sure. see what did Larry Schiller. What did he? What was his take on it? I remember we shot this. I, I worked with Bruno Kirby. Uh, God rest in peace, Bruno. Oh yeah, uh, great. He played Barry Sheck in it. And Bruno was just a great guy. I mean, I love Bruno. I mean, just as a person, he was great. But also, I was so much huge respect for Bruno, who died young, didn't he? He must have died he young. Did, yeah. But you know, he's in Godfather, and Bruno was in. Uh, in Spinal Tap, remember he played the chauffeur yes. in Spinal Tap, and it was just like reading Sammy Davis Jr. Right, and Chris <laughs> Plummer was in it, um, uh, and the horrible Ron Silver was in it. It was a horrible human being. Uh, Ving Rhames was great. I mean, it was a it was a great cast, uh, and the couple of things stick out from this. Like this was a gigantic thing that was made. So what what, what is the what is the chronology? Will we made this in two thousand? When did all the yes. OJ stuff come down? What year? I just don't know. I mean, God, uh, it, you know, you would think that I would know after having just watched that miniseries. Uh, it, it, uh, this was made fairly soon afterwards, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. So, the, I mean, the, no, no pun intended, but the blood was still fairly fresh on the walls. But we had they had hired as our expert, right, to help us through like the aspects of like this and that. And, and I played one of the assistant, Bill Blazer, one of the attorneys, assistant to Chris Plummer. And, and she, the woman who was the assistant, who was our expert, was the LA Times reporter who covered the case. And she was known as being, she had covered the, the LAPD for years. And so, of course, when we had our table read and we we're sitting around, we said like, so, so, and uh, her say, her thing was, look, at, this is how the LAPD works, right? This is what they do. They go, hey, uh, Will Harris, he's the one who killed the dude who came and delivered donuts or, or cupcakes. He murdered him. We know that. We know that Will did it, right? So in order – so Will Harris, the scumbag drug dealer, whatever the LAPD is dealing with, in order to make sure he doesn't get off, they will take – his glove and smear it in blood and put it by his body. They'll take his blood. And, I mean, this is what they did. They they enhanced their cases for years. This was her claim. Who knows if it's true or not? But he said their <laughs> M.O. for how the LAPD would work, they knew O.J. did it, but they said, you know, there's a chance he could get off, so we'll take this blood splatter and we'll throw it here. I mean, they did horribly stupid things, not knowing that the the the, the intense magnifying lens that would be put upon this case would expose all of their nonsense. And that's ultimately, of course, the irony is like, that's what got OJ off. Right. Yeah. But that was their claim to fame. of, And this was, you know, in the year 2000, I guess it was the beginning of cell phones. But one thing I remember we're working on the set and we're doing these, you know, endless 
endless, endless court scenes, which as an actor are just ass, you know, because you always <laughs> have to, you know, like shoot the over, shoot the close, shoot the judge, shoot the judge. I mean, it just won't end, you know. And Ron Silver was right. And Ron, I'm sure someone out there loved him. I mean, someone, but not a lot of the people in the set loved him. He was just this angry, pissed off dude who just brought nothing but bile to work every day. And uh, Christopher Plummer was on it, and they, we worked a lot with Chris, and he was a sweetheart, you know. And it, it, Ron was the kind of guy he, he would shoot, and Ron would go, he'd be on his and his phone, you know, and he'd be like, okay, guys, and places, we're ready to go, and action. And Ron would have his phone out up until they called action, and he'd tuck it under his leg and say his line and go, is that it? Are we done? And pull it out and start texting again or something. And finally, Chris Palmer goes, young man, try, try to be professional. I mean, in front of everybody. It made him crazy. And I, we couldn't say that to him, but it was just so... Like, dude, if you didn't want the job, don't take it. Don't sit here and then, like, you know, tell everyone what a crappy production it is and how horrible the script is. And, you know, it's like such I, – I, I despise that when actors become so poisonous on the set. You know, it's like, dude, you took the gig, you know? You took the gig. Dude, fucking show up with joy and, and add something to the fire here. Don't be – you know, it's that old saying, if you want to hear an actor complain, give him a job. And that's obviously <laughs> what Ron Silver was. So, anyway. Um, well, that's what I remember about that show, though. Well, I'll give you my, my very quick Christopher Plummer anecdote from doing random roles with him. Because right. uh, it's one of my all-time favorites of anybody. Yeah, he, he was in a, uh, a really bad Star, uh, Star Wars uh, uh, ripoff called Star Crash in 1978. <laughs> and he played the Emperor of the Universe. Uh, right. And he said, "Star Crash, oh my God!" <laughs> so there, there are there are two things I can say about that. One, give me Rome any day. I'll do porno in Rome as long as I can get to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to Rome was the greatest thing that happened in that for me. Uh, and he's, the other thing was uh, the, the girl. He said, "What's her name? Monroe? Just Carolyn Monroe? Carolyn Monroe? She was something incredible to look at." <laughs> That was a great pleasure, too, but beyond those two things... <laughs> Carolyn Monroe. Yeah, she was a looker. <laughs> that, that, the only thing that could have made that story better is if he'd actually said she was a looker. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, he is great, though. He's a wonderful oh, actor, yeah. and God almighty, talk about... You know, he has been in a chunk of Hollywood history. I just didn't like Jack Lemmon, too, you know? I mean, you look at all the things that oh. both those guys did, it's just forever. I mean... It's awesome. I love I love being around guys like that. It's so inspiring, you know. So I guess uh, next we've got uh, in my opinion. Jesus. Okay. So I have another pass here. Don't I? Don't I have another pass? Yes, you do. Okay. Yeah. Well, although I'm not sure if you can really qualify. Uh, one of those was a pass that wasn't really a pass, but anyway, you still got one clearly. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't need to pass on this. I, I don't need to. I mean, yeah. this, so in my opinion, the thing is, this was a movie. Uh, sorry, this was a pilot that we made that didn't go beyond the pilot stage. Um, but um, it was really funny. Nat Faxon, uh, Nat is in it. Um, Nat, who won an Oscar um, for writing the script for The Descendants. Yes. That, right? And Nat is a, is a groundling guy. And so he and I kind of fell in love on that and, and just became really good friends. And 
Um, but the story that I the, this this starred a girl um, who was the lead in it. Oh, uh, Bianca, because uh, you're like I've never had to pronounce it. Right. She yeah. was married at the time to um, uh, the soccer player Donovan. Uh, what's his name? Wait, I'll, I'll find Don, that. I want to say Don, Tate Donovan. Uh, Donovan, not Donovan McNabb. Oh, God. Uh, Landon Donovan. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yes. So she was married to him, and, you know, she kept saying, do you want to go to a soccer game? And I think, no, soccer's not American. Why would I want to see that? And um, <laughs> But the thing that was great, God, they don't even have her listed here. Wow, look at that. Do you know who was in this? Um was Terry Garr. Terry Garr was... They don't I did not know listed, that. Dude. They don't, I'm looking at the IMDb. They don't have a list here. So Terry was in this. And Terry... Um, Terry, um, she, she's now quite public about it. Uh, suffers from MS. Right. Uh, at the time, she wasn't public about it. And to their credit, I mean, Terry Garr, when you think of funny women in our business, goes right to the top of the list. You know, for me, oh, yeah. when you think of you know, someone who's stunningly beautiful. You think of her in, you know, everything from every Mel Brooks movie to um, Tootsie. How, how funny she wasn't. I mean, she's amazing, right? So the chance to yeah. work with her, and she was in a wheelchair most of the time. She had such severe MS. I was in awe that these guys who created this show um, actually – Put it to get put her in it and said we don't care that you're in a wheelchair. Do you know what I mean? Because so many people yeah. in in uh, Hollywood just kind of go, oh, uh, oh, you, you know, you're crippled. You can't do possibly be in our show. You know what I mean? <laughs> and to their credit, <laughs> L- Lana Williams and Suzanne Daniels, they just said we don't care. You're just you're the bomb. And she was she was an absolute dream of a person uh, in that. But. The thing I remember about that, I mean, we shot a pilot and didn't go, and we were all heartbroken. It just happens so many times, the number of times you do a pilot that doesn't go. And you know. And one of the guys on that show, Will, continues to write for The Onion. Um, uh, who was it? Uh, not Barry Julian. Was it Barry? He's not on here. Uh, yeah, they don't have a writer credited, actually. No, no, no. Bar- an actor. Barry Julian is oh. a writer, I think, who writes for the – he writes. He wrote for Colbert. Yeah, he's a he's a producer for Colbert, and uh, he wrote for The Onion for a long time. Barry Julie. He's a Canadian oh. dude. Um, not that that means anything. Uh, <laughs> but um, so here's the thing. This was produced by TNT for TBS or some. There was something like that at the beginning when TBS wanted to create. What year was this? Two thousand two. So. Yeah. I went into the audition, and when you're auditioning for a, a show, you go into uh, what's called studio, then you go to network. It's a step process, right? Um, and at the point at which I went to the studio, I, was, I, I went there, and I was like, I went to go sign in as my, you know, on this little sign-in sheet, and I look, and I'm with, you know, there, whatever, there were five, six act parts of the thing. They, all those people were there, and someone has signed in as my character. And I'm like, that's genius. That is genius. I, I've been doing this for, at the time, like 20 years. How come I never figured that out? Like, I'm so much like this character. I'll just sign in as the character. And I was like, I got to find who this person is. And I find out, I like, oh, excuse me. Are you the guy? That's genius. I'm just going to say, I think you're a genius. And the guy goes, uh, no, actually, that's my name. And what? 
<laughs> what? Your name is actually the name of the exact name? First name, last name? I mean, dead on. He goes, yeah. So the woman who created the show is my best friend. She wrote it for me. I went, what? <laughs> what? And here I am auditioning for that role. And so it turned out that he and I went to network. We were the only people to go to network for it. And he works all the time. I won't mention his name, but he works all the time, this dude. He's a really funny cat, and I have a lot of respect for him. But he he went into the audition at network. And as he goes in, it's one of those auditions where it's like you they, – they, they do this thing where you're auditioning behind basically toilet paper, right? So you can hear when you're in the waiting room every – horrible you know every burp in the room i mean i can hear the guy and it's crickets in there he's doing the exact same thing i'm doing but it's crickets but prior to going in you know you have to make this deal to in place for what your deal will be and the business affairs people are like peter's not getting the role so let's we whatever you want we'll give him all the money you want we'll increase his we're so sorry but you know this other guy's getting the role so I had this huge deal, but I didn't care. I know I wasn't getting it. And then I hear him go in, and it's just like he's at a funeral home doing stand-up comedy because no one's <laughs> laughing at him, right? And I'm like, I'm looking now at the material going, is this shit just not funny? I don't get it. I don't. And then I go in there, and I just do it, and I'm really loose, and I don't care. And and I wreck the room. I mean, I'm people are peeing on themselves. They're laughing and loving it. I get hired. This guy who had the role written for him didn't get the job. And I was so yeah. horrified and brokenhearted for him, you know, because just imagine being that guy and, you know, they went to college together and, oh, we got a chance to work together. And I, the first day that we shot the pilot, I went up to the woman who created the show and I said, I really, I know what happened. I know what went down. I don't know why it went down, but I'm, I know he's your buddy and I hope there's no hard feelings between you and me. She said, absolutely. She was super cool, but she said it was all about the network going, we sign your check. Oh, that's your best friend? Screw him. Screw you. He's not check. <laughs> and here's my big penis on the table. Flop. You know, and, and and they just they just screwed her. She made the mistake of saying, This is who I want, I'll write for you. You know, and they went, Uh-huh. Oh, that's who you want? Well and you know, there are tons and tons of stories of of that happening. But to this day, every time I see this dude, I'm like Hey man, what's up? I'm still kind of mortified that it went down that way because it it could easily have been me, you know. Like sure, yeah. we're just going to screw you over for no reason other than we sign the check and we want to, you know. I mean, he's a super funny guy, but it was horrible anyway. Uh, well, let's see. Next, we've got uh, Good Time Max. Um. Good Time Max. Jesus, was this the one that Jimmy Franco directed? Yeah. All oh, right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know about this. I mean, Jimmy just called up and said, do you want to do something in this thing? And I said, yes. And it, it, the whole thing was nonsense. And I, I don't remember anything about it. I don't, wasn't it a, no, it wasn't a horror show. It was a, I don't remember, but I remember I was walking, I was, I was walking on the, on the Warner Brothers lot, not long, uh, like a couple of years ago. And as you, when you walk in that lot, if you come off um, the main drag there, it's right behind Ellen's thing. And okay. and I don't really know Jimmy other than doing this thing. And he would this, – this person walked out of the back door of Ellen's show and 
And I like, you know, kind of like he and I are walking in this deserted, you know, Warner Brothers back lot. And I kind of give him the head nod. I don't know who he is. And he goes, don't I know you? And it's like, it's me, Jimmy. We I directed you in Good Time Max. And I'm like, how do you remember me? I looked at you and I, you're you're Jimmy Franco. How the fuck did I not know you? You know, and he has a phenomenal memory. I mean, I, I respect I know that it seems like a a favorite thing to do in Hollywood to shit on Jimmy Franco for some reason. I don't know why um, he's a really smart guy that I respect and works all the time. He does all these, you know, he went to Columbia and got degrees and stuff and writes and, but people love to crap all over the guy. Um, am I right? Will? Um, don't people love to do that for some reason? That's the perception. Yeah. It's just, and it, that like was not like they want to call him arrogant or something because he wears glasses. I don't know. He was like <laughs> super sweet to me, and and I, you know the movie didn't do well. But what the hell? He's out there trying to make movies that don't have you know guns and murder and mayhem and rape in them. You know, he made a movie that he wanted to make that wasn't a great movie. But I don't know. I don't really. I, I was in one scene where I. You know, was a doctor. I don't remember much about it, but he was a good egg, and I, I you know, uh, it's a that's my only story about that movie. Is like show up one day, work on it, and then go home. You know, and collect your uh, your fifteen hundred dollars for doing a, a sure. day's work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. The next is the Untitled Cedric the Entertainer project. Right, and this is a pilot that we did with Ced, uh, who I I have huge respect for. I love said, um, and it was right after the writer's strike. So we made it, um, 2008 and, uh, the then head of ABC, Steve, Steve, um, McPherson. Yes. Uh, we make the pilot and Cedric is great. I mean, just, I was so in awe of this guy because he, um, co-wrote it, co-produced it, was in it and, and one was one of the producers on the thing, and uh, you know, every day he would show up and bring to the set such grace and funniness and wit. And he wore so many hats, you know, because he had to deal with the network. He had to. He was a big star, and and it's not easy doing that. It's not easy wearing all of those hats and not being a douchebag, um, you know, because you can get stressed out. And, sure. Uh, the you know. Um, Regina Hall was in it, Melissa Peterman, who played my wife. We played as neighbors, and uh, it was just a really funny pilot that after we made it, right, um, it tested off the charts. I mean, black people liked it, white people liked it, <laughs> yellow people, purple people loved it, right? And we knew we had a hit on our hands. And uh, Steve McPherson comes to set afterwards. It was created by Rock Rubin. Rock Rubin and Seth had known each other for a long time. Rock is a super funny dude who worked on King of Queens forever. And Steve comes to, to Seth and says, listen, you know, the strike is over, but I need you. I, I don't want these guys to be the showrunners. I want to get, you know, Phil Rosenthal or Chuck Lorre and all these people that he had under contract, right? Uh, development. So he said, they're not doing anything because of the writer's show. Everything's so I want them to run. So go meet with them. And so Seth goes, well, you know, I like Rock. Just, just meet with him. You know, it's one of these things, like, exactly in, in my opinion. Like, I'm signing the check. Do as I tell you, right? <laughs> and so Seth goes and meets with him. And when you meet with him, you know, it's kind of difficult 
for both parties because the guys like you know Phil for those of you know Phil Rosenthal created I love everyone loves Raymond and Chuck yeah. Laurie does every show on TV and all these guys you know when you meet you have to go hey I like your show what I would do differently is following you know make him into a you know balloon animal maker you know or something you know it's like <laughs> some ridiculous idea and to Seth's credit he met all these people. And he goes back to McPherson. He says, you know what? This show took me three years to make. I made it with Rock. He gets me. I get him. I'm going to stick with him. I don't want any of these people. And Steve McPherson goes, really? Really? Okay. Well, then guess what? Your show's not picked up. And, mm. and he canceled. The, he wouldn't pick up the show. <laughs> it was such ridiculousness. It was such, again, this, like, you know, little boys in the schoolyard, and I can show you. And, you know, to Seth's credit... You know, he he's stuck by his guy, you know, and yeah. often in these stories, you want those stories to be. And then, you know, Rock Rubin and the show ran for 19 years and look at said he's stuck by. And well, he stuck by him and the whole show got shit canned. You know, <laughs> I mean, he did the right thing, you know, yeah. and he just took it in the mouth and said at the time was doing a lot of big movies. So I think there was a part of him that he just didn't care. He knew what he was doing, the risk he was taking. He was proud of the show. He obviously wanted the show to go. And Regina Hall um, is amazing. She played, uh, she pl just played on Blackish, by the way. She played the uh, that episode of Black Nanny, Regina did. And she's also oh, right, in Barbershop. Yeah. And she's tremendous, yeah. tremendous talent, Regina. And so Seth, I mean, I love Seth. Like I said, I mean, he and, you know, Anthony on Blackish is the same way. Anthony is, you know, one of the co-creators, and he's a star, and, and he shows up every day, knows everyone's lines, has made... I'm just in awe of that. I've been doing it for 30 years, and he's one of the... Anthony Anderson and Cedric are one of those guys who, when you show up to work, because of how good they are and how conscientious they are, they make you want to be better, you know? And that's yeah. the highest compliment I can pay to anybody, you know? Because it would be so easy for them to, like... I'm drunk. I'm in my trailer. Go away. You know, like I'm a big star. Get away from me. And they're like none of that. None of that. These guys are just amazingly professional. And it was just it was heartbreaking at the time. I admired said for standing up and for rock and wanting to get his boy in there. You know, at yeah. the same time, we wanted to be in. The, we could still be on the air. You know, that that, <laughs> that thing. Uh, but anyway, there it is. That that was that's what I remember about that show. Well, then I didn't intend to have three pilots in a row because the next thing on the list was uh, circling the drain. And really, <laughs> if something to be said about that, that's fine. The only reason really I wanted to ask about that was the, the, the one-two punch of James Urbaniak and Seymour Cassell. Right. Now, now tell me what you know about James Urbaniak. I'm just so curious. Like, you are a trained professional in this field. What do you know about <laughs> James? Uh, what do I really know about no, him? I'm Not a lot. As far as his work, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Venture Brothers fan. Ah, is that why? Okay, because I knew, you know, I didn't know James going into it. I mean, we worked together on, again, this is a pilot that was made, um, gosh, what year did we make this, dude? What year? Uh, it was 2010, maybe? No, 2000, uh, 2011. 2011, yeah. yeah. Um, so this was produced by um, Michael Eisner, who had okay. just been fired from, or left, uh, Disney and ABC, right? And Michael right. Eisner, you know, was the biggest gun out there. And so he was getting into making – the idea was they we made this pilot basically on spec. We shot it, made it, 
And uh, the idea was he was just going to sell it. People would fall in love with it and sell it. The idea of this circling the drain is a term for people who are about to die. I didn't know that until I did this pilot. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the thing about this, it was about a woman, uh, Alexandra Torresani. Now, who is she? Well, uh, see, she went, I don't know her either, really. I didn't know her at the time and still don't know her, obviously. But she played an obituary. She ran, you know, it's a horrible idea for a show. Um, <laughs> it's a horrible idea, the idea that, you know, you go to see people who are dying and uh, you write funny stories about them. I don't know. The whole thing was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, you asked about you asked about uh, James. Who else did you ask about? Oh, uh, Seymour Cassell. Oh, so Seymour. God bless Seymour. Now, there's someone, too, whom I immediately go to um, because he's such an old school guy, you know. Oh, he made all of those movies, um, you know, with uh, the Carradines. He made, you know, I mean, he made some, you know, he's part of a kind of the uh, independent movie um, trend that came in the late 70s, early 80s, you know? So he's like yeah. a real hero of mine. But the thing about Seymour when we were working on this thing, Seymour um, has a hard time hearing and mm-hmm. carries an ear, what's called an earwick. An earwick is a, basically um, a microphone you put in your ear and people feed you your lines. My jam <laughs> button has one of these, right? And it's a yeah. terrifying, terrifying thing to work with someone who has one of these because, uh, you know, it's like if you put your ear next to the radio and then you try to have a conversation with somebody, right? It's impossible. <laughs> so all Seymour does when he, when he was doing it, I'm sure, I don't know if he does it still, but it's terrifying for you as an actor because all he's looking at, he's not looking at you, he's looking at your lips because someone's <laughs> feeding him his lines. He couldn't remember his lines or he couldn't, I think he had trouble remembering his lines too, but he would just watch your lips. And when your lips stop moving, Seymour would say his line. So if your line was, uh, hey, dude, we should really go out and get some dinner before midnight, right? That's your line. And if you went, hey, dude, we should really go out. <laughs> and get some dinner before midnight. Like you wanted to make a choice to like, like put a pause in there. <laughs> Seymour would see your lips stop moving on. Hey, dude, we should really go out. <laughs> well, let's go out then. And get some donuts to go. What? What you just do, dude? What you? <laughs> <laughs> so everyone around Seymour would kind of be like, Hey, dude, we should really go out and get some donuts before the limit. You know, it's like you just <laughs> whatever you do, don't stop moving them 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 gums, man. Because Seymour coming in with this line. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was all we shot on high def at a time when, like you know, they shot on a camera. They had bought a camera that you know t- could take video, and we were all blown away by it because no, it was what was it six, seven years ago? They were shooting on you know like it was traditionally a still camera, like you know for taking pictures, and they were shooting us on that. That's how they shot, and it was so early in that what was called red dot you know technology that anytime you moved, it all was blurry, and just the whole thing was a zoo, you know. Um, but anyway, that was uh, it was another failed pilot that none of us really thought had a chance of ever going, you know. <laughs> All I can say is thank God for Blackish for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I should be doing these nonstop, yeah. <laughs> and then last one I solely picked for the title. Mercan Venal. Yes. Uh, Merkin Penal is a little bit of genius, I gotta say. Uh, Merkin Penal, you know, uh, when I was doing Herman's Head, I got in with a whole 
crew of guys from Chicago, a bunch of Second City guys. Yeah. Um, and we improvised together, like I was saying before, with Ryan Stiles and all these guys. And and uh, one of the guys um, is a guy who makes movies all the time. Uh, his name is Mitch Rouse, and he's a really, really funny guy um, who puts together um, – these movies that he comes up with and writes, he wrote a thing called the the factory or something like that. And I'm trying to look up this credit. Will, where is it? Is it even on here? Oh, it is. It's under movies, isn't it? Um, yes. And, um, it was really funny. It's a, it took place, you know, um, guys like Brian Doyle Murray were in it. Um, uh, Joel Murray was in it. Joel and like all these crew, he just basically, calls on all these guys and I play this insane guy who owns the prison. Um, and it was super funny. Um, and one of the geniuses of our time, I think, you know, is, um, a guy named Dave Pasquese. I don't know if you know Dave. Um, he's a Chicago actor in the world of improv. He does a long form, uh, Herald improvisation in Chicago with TJ. Um, it's called Dave and TJ. And uh, Dave is a really, really, he and Mitch had the lead roles in this thing. And they were, you know, guys who had gone to prison and shouldn't have gone to prison and were really, you know, I mean, it didn't really matter. It was all kind of dopey and funny. But it was a prison, really dark comedy that takes place inside of a prison uh, with all of these second these second city guys who were hysterically funny to work with. <laughs> and I was just played this out-of-control uh, warden who just... Um, kept losing his shit every time he was in the scene. And it was hysterically funny. And it's kind of heartbreaking because uh, Mitch made this thing for himself, by himself, because no one else. I mean, he's one of those guys who, you know, we all sit around and we're drinking wine late at night going, hey, Will, wouldn't it be funny if we made a movie about you as a, you know, running cockfights? And you're going, that would be hysterical. Well, Mitch (laughs) is one of those guys with Jay Leggett, rest in peace, who actually – goes and writes it and produces it and does it. And the rest <laughs> of us fat asses just sit around and say, it would be hysterical. Someone really ought to do it. Well, he does it. So I am in awe. Whenever Mitch calls, I'm like, dude, you want to? I'm like, yep, I'm in. I'm in. I don't care what it is. I'm just in awe of someone who can actually not talk about it, but do it. And this was really funny, dude. It was a funny thing and a little heartbreaking. He went around and they tried – you know, they beat every pillowcase in town trying to sell this thing. But, I, you know, it was before Orange is the New Black was out, you know, and oh, yeah. no one wanted to like, ooh, prison. That's not funny. And, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so uh, it was a little bit of a heartbreaker. You ended with a heartbreaker, Will. Well, I'll, I'll cheer it up slightly and say that uh, I actually I've done random roles with uh, with Joel Murray and uh, I traded messages with him on Twitter, so I sent him the link to this podcast uh, and said, "Oh, you might like this. I've talked to such and such." And he says, "Oh, well, actually, I'm I'm buddies with uh, Bruce McGill and Kurt Fuller and uh, whoever else. Uh, so yeah, I'll definitely check that out." <laughs> uh, well, then I saw on Facebook that you and he were friends, so I sent him a message saying, "Oh, well, I think I'm talking to another one of your friends." Yeah. And he says, "Like, oh, I just saw him last week at the uh, Caddyshack yeah, golf yeah. tournament." Yeah, Joel and I. Joel, I love Joel. He's just such a great egg. He's a good guy, and he. Uh, He's had this Caddyshack event, this fundraiser that he does with Billy down in Florida, where yeah. the you know the Golf Hall of Fame is. And you know Joel is a guy who I only got to know through improvising 
doing Second City stuff. And for years, I just thought Joel didn't like me. It's a very, you know, he's a very, like, he says six words, you know, he does very, he does not very, you know, he's not a warm hugging guy, but then he like call me up and say, hey, you want to go play golf? And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go play golf. Let's. Do, you want to hang out? You want to come play? We're gonna do it improv. I'm like, I think Joel likes me, you know. It's like, <laughs> and as such, you know, I mean, his kids are kind of grown up with my kids and their buddies, and he's uh, become a really good friend of mine. I really, I really admire Joel, and he works all the time, and his work is spot on. That that the the thing Joel did um, with um, uh, not Billy Bob, she's <laughs> with. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, God, he was so good in the, the America thing, you know. Oh, uh, Bobcat. Go Bobcat, on. yeah. The thing he did was God Bob... bless America. Yeah. God, was that good. And Joel was great in that. I mean, just great. I was really watching Joel, how good he was in that that dark, dark movie. I was really hoping that that would, like, take off and be a game changer for him. You know what I mean? I really – that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> Who knows? At least he's he's had a uh, Mad Men. That's certainly. Oh yeah, I mean Joel has made people realize that he could actually be a dramatic actor. Yeah, well, I think that's a you know for a lot, a lot of comedians that's a big deal. But you know Joel's been in so many successful shows. I mean, so many still standing and Dharma and those things. I mean, he's had a huge, huge career. He must have been great on the show. I bet. Oh, well, we actually just did a it was a print interview, but he was just a great interview in general. Yeah, yeah, he's a good he's a good guy. All right, well, you've you've suffered enough here, and uh, <laughs> but you've provided me with wonderful stories. I very much appreciate it. Of course, uh, well, my, my pleasure. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to do. And remembering all man. the horribly obscure things that I've done. <laughs> I, I I described this to someone yesterday as being a uh, conceptually ridiculous podcast. So thank you for. <laughs> Thank you for uh, basking in the ridiculousness. <laughs> well, thank you for having it. It gives a chance to uh, revisit uh, horrible, dusty lanes that are better probably Absolutely. forgotten. And for everyone, please be sure to continue tuning in to uh, Blackish. Got a few more episodes left of the season. Yeah, we do. And uh, we got picked up for next year. And it's uh, Congratulations. There it is. I'm really happy about it. It's a good show to do. Really happy and proud to be a part of it. And I, I don't say that about every show. You can tell I don't ever based upon <laughs> this podcast. But that show is one that I'm, you know, such a rare thing. It's a show. It's actually about something. You know, I mean, it's a sitcom. It's about something. Uh, you know, uh, it's actually they kind of deal and grapple with some sort of social thing. It's very uh, not trying to make it like we're curing cancer, but it is it is a show that is trying to be a la Norman Lear. You know, they had a show about the N word. They had a show about police brutality that really, frankly, wasn't even a laugh in it, but it was all about what it is to experience life from their point of view. And that's all they're doing. And, it's, you know, they managed to make those things funny. You know, it's a, uh, it's remarkable and I'm very proud of it. So it's such a rare thing, as you know, to do something like you feel like is having some sort of, um, you know, this day and age where so much is topsy turvy and socially and so much police violence going on. Um, it's great. I really am proud of it. So, and I, my daughter is uh, ten, and uh, she basically watches the Wednesday night ABC lineup from start to finish. Oh, is that right? Oh. Yeah, she loves she loves Blackish. Saves them on the DVR, rewatches them. Oh, that's I mean, great. And then what? The Goldbergs and uh, and the Middle and Modern Family. There you go. ABC Family. We like it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so well, much. Thank you for I having really me. Really a blast. It. You've been listening to Obscurity Knox, and now you're not. 
Look for us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X. And we're not bitter about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time.